0: Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Because, like, I think I'm addicted to running. To make their body and their brain work against them without that person even knowing,
1: always something that's connected to morality. And the flip side of morality is shame. Guilt mobilizes action. Shame reduces it. I,
0: I could drink coffee all day. Keep it coming. And I've been keeping a food journal the past couple of weeks. So I feel like from what I've seen, I can splurge tonight, you know? Is that for uh, one of your classes? The food journal? No. No, the food journal is just... Um, I've noticed, like, I tend to... I tend to eat not a ton of bad stuff, like all throughout the day. It's just, there's consistently bad stuff. So I was like, I'm going to start journaling. So I have an awareness. So it's not like, Oh, I haven't had that much fast food this week. It's like, Oh no, I know exactly when the last time I had fast food was, it was this day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I had to do one. I had to do a food journal for a class at Malone and, at the time, I remember my takeaway being that I actually didn't eat it nearly as bad as I thought. But I'm sure that that has changed since then. I know it's changed since then. I mean, you kind
0: of, I feel like you got healthier a little earlier on than I did. Well, a, a little earlier on, I'm not eating healthy that well at all. <laughs> so I've just been trying to, I mean, I buy a lot of, when I track it, I buy a lot of produce, I eat a lot of fruits. Um, make a lot of like veggie stuff. I think my problem is and that's why I wanted to do a food journal. It's not I'm not counting calories. I'm not doing any of that. It's literally like how much did I eat? What did I eat? And when did I eat it? Because I've noticed like from back in high school when I was doing like all the Taco Bell runs at midnight. Dude, that's a consistent trend. Not even like getting fast. Well, yeah, sometimes getting fast food late night, but mostly just like Wanting to eat at like 12 yeah. every day.
1: Yeah. No, I get that. I I actually probably I don't eat that bad overall, the 80, 80, 90 percent of the time. But it's the 10 or 20 percent of the time where I do just go get fast food down in Florida or whatever. Other than that, I'm mostly eating like salads and tacos and stuff like small little tacos and stuff.
0: So I don't know. Yeah. The worst part is uh seamless transition. Uh, in my classes, I, so I'm in a diagnosis class right now. Um, so the class is all about uh, how to diagnose like abnormal psychological states. So we're talking like um, anorexia, bulimia, anorexia, Um, or I'm sorry, bulimia nervosa, anorexia nervosa, bipolar disorder. Um, there's a multiple personalities case, uh, major depression disorder, like a lot of these like disorders. And when we were learning about bulimia nervosa, there was a lot of things in it where I was like, Huh? Like it it talked about like binge eating disorder where you eat most of your food late at night and you eat way too much food and you don't have a good sensor for when you should stop eating. And I'm like, huh, interesting.
1: Um, Isn't bulimia, though, where
0: they throw it up afterward? Yes. Well, purging is usually a symptom of bulimia um but it can also be like excessive guilt and shame that leads to uh you could use laxatives you could use like excessive exercise um or you could even like limit your eating in other situations um bulimia is different from anorexia whereas anorexia is a extreme limit of food um so it's almost like hyper control Um, even some language that people who have anorexia nervosa use, um, and especially when like, if you go to like online sites and stuff like that, where they kind of glorify anorexia as like a weight loss technique, they'll talk about the strength these people have in control. Like, Hey, you need food, but you're so strong. that You can say no to it. Bulimia is different because there's, it's characterized by these binge moments, where it's like excessive eating or uncontrolled eating. And that's where the disorder develops for them is an awareness of, I shouldn't be eating this much and a like compensation for that, that is usually unhealthy. And then it's kind of ping ponging between those two. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Which I can like get, like I said, I, I don't think I have that diagnosis. um, But man, maybe it's me personally, but I feel like most of the things I read through, I can see how people could have a little lens of that or a little bit of that. Like everybody can. It's just for some people, it swings a little bit farther. Like I think I probably swing far farther than like the middle when it comes to bulimia, because like. And maybe this comes from me when I was like super chubby in high school. It's like, okay, I just eat a ton of garbage. And then I feel like I have to go run five miles or I eat Mm. like crazy. I can remember all the meals that we've gone to like good restaurants for like birthday meals. And dad's like, hey, why are you like, why are you eating a small piece of salmon and broccoli like, when we're at this really nice restaurant, get someone else. I'm like, no, I should count. I need to be counting my calories and watching my health. So, yeah, you- I don't think it's got to the point where it's causing major disruption, which that's the thing. I was talking to a friend of mine about OCD, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, because I can see some things I might have in that, too. And we were like, do we have this? Like, do we have this diagnosis? Like, and the major thing that I kind of came to was… The textbooks I was reading said that when it comes to these disorders, along with having to meet certain diagnosis criteria and even a certain amount of those, it kind of has to cause significant distress or dysfunction or inability to perform in, like, your social spheres, your work sphere, your school sphere, your family sphere. Like It it can't just be that, oh, yeah, you're kind of like this sometimes. It really has to be a hindrance for it to get that diagnosis.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you with food, I've joked before that you'll go back and forth between eating like steak and shake and just plain lettuce. Like those are kind of your two (laughs) modes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. (laughs) What was your. Yeah, that's kind of how it goes. uh, What was your. This is kind of reaching back quite a bit, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but with the addictions class you were in counseling for addictions, what was your like big yeah. takeaway from that? Cause I think we talked about it a little <gasps> bit on the, the lost episode for the listeners. We recorded one that never uh, made it to light, but yeah, the audio was I think so bad. The yeah. content
0: was great, but the audio was terrible. Right.
1: Right. But yeah, we didn't say anything like to get us canceled, but uh, what, what
0: did you think about that? It was interesting seeing how, with addictions, how hard you fight against yourself to break, like to keep an addiction going on. Because um, I think that in a Western society, we tend to think that our brain is the master of our body like like the conscious brain like the the thoughts that i have in my head myself that i am like the complete master of my body i control all spheres i think sometimes we remove our our body i mean i me and you both grew up in a church like a charismatic pentecostal church so we use this word flesh a lot like this are my flesh i'm the master of my flesh But man, like our bodies do a lot um, and they control a lot on just autopilot. So for a lot of these addictions, what you see when trying to break them, like we know about withdrawal symptoms, um, but I don't think sometimes we understand how complicated those things are. And this isn't to say that like, if you're addicted, there's no hope. I I think it's more to create empathy for people who know people with addictions, because man, the thing that always sticks out to me roundabout way to say that the biggest takeaway for me was like, when it comes to a chemical addiction, um, is if you think of, you know, our brain is made up of these connections called, uh, neurons. And these neurons are communicating chemically with each other to help run the whole system. You know. I I'm, I always think of whenever I hear of neurons. I think of like. I remember in grade school. Learning about like. Oh, what was that really big dinosaur called? The long necks. Uh, mm. I, I couldn't. I can't think of the name of them. But I always remember hearing that they're so big. That like if something hit their tail. It would take like. Seconds. Maybe even minutes for that information to reach. The head. Oh dang! Um, just because of like how long the information has to pass, and so for us, those, those that, that travels much quicker, and our brains are way more complicated, um, and way more efficient, and that efficiency is what makes addiction so terrible, because your body gets used to functioning a certain way. So let's say the person's using like uh, a, a drug or a chemical that releases dopamine. I think. I think with that we're talking it's been a while, but we're probably talking like um maybe meth meham meth, and fam, meth and fam, that word is so tough meth <laughs> uh, I think meth releases dopamine, that's what it actually does, it like floods the body, and that's why you feel like so great um so your body then gets used to running off that much dopamine, which means neuron a communicates to neuron B, hey, here's all this dopamine. And it's not just that neuron A communicates more. Neuron B gets used to hearing and receiving more communication. So what happens is when the drug goes away, neuron B communicates backwards. If it doesn't receive information saying, hey, here's a lot of dopamine – it'll start communicating backwards saying we should have way more dopamine in our system right now something is wrong and that backwards communication is what creates withdrawal symptoms that's why i I gave up coffee uh, during that class and that's why the withdrawals for that were like headaches lack of energy irritability um Like all of those symptoms because it's the opposite. It's my body communicating backwards. Hey, we're supposed to be more energetic. Hey, we're supposed to be receiving this stuff right now. And that's not my brain telling me that. Well, that's not my consciousness. That's not me making a conscious decision to tell my body that it needs to chemically alter to make me want to get coffee. That's just like the autopilot that's developed in my brain trying to get back to what it now considers normal And man, with addictions, it's so weird how a couple, it seems like just a couple of bad decisions, we're not talking lifetimes, we're not talking years, a couple of bad decisions can really alter a person's autopilot to make their body and their brain work against them without that person even knowing it, which then results in the person making excuses because they don't want to feel uncomfortable. They're not even aware that they're making these decisions. It's just what's happening. And it, it just really create a bunch of empathy for people with addictions. Because I'm like, man, it's so crazy how they work. It's not just people who are addicted are just like, and this is one thing we talked about in the class is confronting these biases. It's not just that if you're addicted, you're not disciplined. You're a bum. You're just lazy. You You're choosing like this addiction. Like, no, like. They're hard things to work through. Um, I don't know. That was just my big takeaway from that class. Yeah. Sorry, I rambled on there for a second. Well, no, because like with food, um, going back to that,
1: that's what I was going to say is I don't really eat anything that bad, but I just eat probably too much. I'm like, we. this is what we talked about on the last episode is us being both kind of like addictive personalities and I think that's like oh, yeah. my issue. So we I don't know if we're trying to hide the fact that we're recording this on Thanksgiving Day, because it'll come out a lot later. Uh but <laughs> earlier we were eating and one of the kids, the little kids, actually a, a couple of them were running up to their parents, like, Have I eaten enough? Can I go? And their parents like, Oh, well, eat some more of your corn and then you can go play that sort of thing. And I was like, I don't think I've ever had that experience as a kid. Like, I don't think I was ever the kid would <laughs> that my, that mom and dad were saying like, no, you need to eat a little bit more. Like my, my, uh, I guess appetite. And also this is sort of the way I handle life. I guess is just like, whatever is on the plate in front of me, like I'm going to have, uh, which when it comes to food is not so great of a thing, but I guess when it comes to like work and whatnot is good. Um, But the other thing too, for me, again, just with food and health and stuff is I've actually realized over the course of time that when I stop drinking as much coffee, I actually will just like that lose several pounds. So like not changing what I'm Hmm. eating at all, and just stopping black coffee, so it's not calories or anything, but something about that in my body, like something about just constantly getting that I don't know if it's the acid in my stomach or if it's the caffeine or what specific aspect it is, but when I don't do that and I drink like sparkling water or water or something instead, uh I drop like seven or eight pounds so but again, the coffee thing is another right. one where I just wanna. Keep it, you know, I I could drink coffee all day. Keep it coming.
0: I mean, I did. I did drink coffee all day today. That's what we do at our family Thanksgivings. It's just... Also, though, ugh. so with addictions,
1: because, like, I think I'm addicted to running. So I guess that can be a good thing, right? Like, for me, I don't get up in the morning and run. I go through my day and of course, like I plan certain days. I'm probably going to run at this time. I got to get this done first, but at the same time, sometimes I'm just like studying and it's like four in the afternoon and I just like need to get up and run. So that's why I say it's an addiction. And do you know anything about like, can there be positive addictions?
0: Well, Probably there can probably be be positive addictions. I I think the main thing with addictions is that we we classify them as addictions because they're negative. Gotcha. So I don't know if there's as much research I've seen on positive addictions because we're interested in treating the negative ones than establishing positive ones, which I think I have seen a couple of TED talks that kind of talk about like hey, so much of our field is directed towards fixing the broken without, like, establishing new, healthier systems. Um, so that could be a thing that might be in development. But I have heard – I do not think this is what you have. Um, I have heard that there – one of my textbooks talked specifically about a stress addiction and how, like, excessive running, it could be like – part of like a stress addiction because we get so used to being busy and having that like adrenaline f- flow of being stressed that like running is just another way of us being able to activate that without like having our workload in front of us or being at work or like, cause people get so addicted to that, you know, <sighs> adrenal high. I could have that. <sighs> cause like, <laughs> Because when you say like, yeah, I'm just like at home studying and, you know, I want to go and run. I don't know. Which I can get to. In different ways, right? If I'm just at home, like reading. Oh, sometimes it's so hard for me to focus, which that might be more OCD than anything. But I think we're doing something that I would (laughs) warn people against, which is seeing one or two. Parts of a diagnosis and being like, I must have this whole thing. There must be something wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um. Well, so I kind of asked that
1: question and maybe got us on a rabbit trail. But did you have a, you know, your one thing you wanted to bring?
0: I think that was kind of it. Oh, because cool. I was just kind of talking about abnormal psychology and. The weirdness surrounding like food and anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa and thinking I kind of had that. This class is a little weird to take take from for this format because it's just all about diagnosis and symptoms and and stuff like that. But I think the big thing is like – I guess another interesting thing that kind of ties along is just like the biological effect of like we don't choose our biology – we don't choose like our DNA strands, but how like that can have such a huge effect on the rest of your life. And it's just like, cool. These are the cards you're dealt. Hope that's OK. Like we talked about having like addictive personalities. We have both talked about like food. I can remember that when reading about like anorexia and bulimia, like there is a biological component where some people are more predisposed to craving food. And just like seeking after more food, whereas other people don't have as much of a craving. So like, is that part of why I eat so much? Well, no, it's probably not just that. There's also like I've talked about my own like impulse control. So that's more of like a psycho, like a psychodynamic thing I need to work through or a psychological thing. But also I've been like socialized through like seven years of just going out and getting Taco Bell at midnight with my friends, probably five or six times a week. So I'm socialized to think like, Hey, if there's a good time going on, I should be stuffing my face. So there's all these different things that go into it. It's not just biological, but with some of these psychological disorders, like bipolar disease, um, going from like, manic highs of hyper energy super goal driven running off like three or four hours of sleep like super energetic to like super major depressive lows that's almost entirely biological that's Hmm. not something you like learn socially it's not something you develop through temperament it's like you're losing you don't have certain chemicals in your brain and you need medication to help balance you out like people don't choose that Same thing with there's just so many things like that, even with like depression, depression like has been shown to be like linked to certain DNA strands. It doesn't mean you're going to be depressed forever, but you're more like. Likely to succumb to it, so it's just I don't know. It's weird thinking how much like. How much of us is undecided, and that's not to like once again, I don't want to sound like a like a like a doom preacher. Like, you are who you're born to be, and there's no escape, and you're always going to be this, and there's no escape from it. Because cause people can change. Like, with people who have bipolar disorder, uh, there's medications that can really help them to, like, be functioning and honestly have a lot of strengths that come from being bipolar. Like, if you balance out their energy, they can be great go-getters. Um, I guess I didn't realize. It's just that- weird that,
1: like. Well, I guess I didn't realize that that's what bipolar was. Not that I necessarily... Did you think it was anger? No, I kind of thought it was... Like, when I hear people just colloquially say, like, oh, I have bipolar or whatever, like, online, you know, the whole stereotype or whatever, it's... I guess I always thought it was more multiple personalities. More like that. Hmm. But that's just,
0: you know, me understand... My understanding. No, because I... I always thought that being bipolar, like whenever I was like, man, I'm so bipolar today. I talk about how I would be like really angry and then really like chill or happy and then really angry. I always thought bipolar had to do with anger. But no, yeah, bipolar is like at least like four times a year you swap between these two modes where like in a manic state or a hypomanic state, you're just hyper energized you're going off of 3 or 4 hours of sleep you're like starting a million different projects and like super goal driven um and obviously like you're also probably craving highs you're seeking after like super high enjoyments that can cut that can lead to like negative consequences and doing things you probably wouldn't normally do and then after that you swap to these very depressive lows and a lot of times bipolar gets misdiagnosed as like major depression, which can actually lead to like more depression and higher suicidality rates because like their depression isn't really getting better because it's not depression. It's bipolar. And then when they get into those bipolar states where they're super goal oriented, like they can have the energy to have like more suicidal ideation, which is not good. And why like people have been trying to make sure that we don't, Misdiagnose those things. Um, I forget even what your question was. Well, I was gonna ask,
1: so in you guys' class, you're focusing on the diagnosis,
0: or are you into treatment yet? No, we're not really into treatment right now. It's more just learning how to diagnose these certain ab- like abnormal psychological states. They're trying to get us familiar with uh, the d s m five. Or the Diagnosis Statistical Manual, uh, which is like kind of being able to go through and find the symptoms and find the diagnosis criteria for these different disorders and be able to make accurate diagnoses uh, when reading through like our case books or watching like a video of like some actors playing out a counseling session. It's, it's a really fun class. It's just hard to talk about. Yeah. Because I can't be like, hey, did you see that case with Ruth? man, what did you think about it? Right. So
1: what does a counselor, you know, you or just a counselor in general, who's not a psychiatrist, you know, in other words, if you're not, you're not going to be the one prescribing medicine. So would you still counsel people through those diseases or disorders? Or does it kind of get like, they get passed from one person to the next? When it becomes something that is like treated with medicine.
0: I think from what I remember. um, So let's say we're talking about this bipolar client. Um, If you determine that that's what it is. First, you would probably want to get. Them to go and get certain blood work done. So you could recommend them to go to a doctor and say, hey, for treatment, we need you to go and, and get this checked out. So they go to a medical professional, get that done. And then. Off of that, you could you kind of learn like how to how to read that information. So you could say, hey, I'm going to recommend you to go meet with the psychiatrist. I'm going to write my recommendation. Here's my referral. Then they go to the psychiatrist, meet with them. And that person writes out their prescription. But then as part of treatment, you still probably want them to meet up for like counseling sessions to make sure that they can work through some people they'll. They'll take to it and run with it. But other people, like in the person in our case book, really, and a lot of people, really don't want to – sometimes it's shameful to admit there's something just wrong with your body. Uh, that doesn't sit well with everyone. And with bipolar specifically, a lot of people really like those manic episodes. Like the energy is unreal. What you can get done during those states is insane. Some people don't want to necessarily give up those states right away until like they see the consequences it can have. So that's where like traditional counseling can work alongside. Like, yeah, you'd refer to get them like the medicine that they need and they might still check back in with that psychiatrist every three months, every six months, every year, depending on where they're at um but they still need to have counseling with that to make sure they're sticking with their treatment to make sure that they are learning how to deal without having these manic episodes learning new coping techniques maybe establishing new rhythms of rest in their life so you kind of more have like a team approach if even if you aren't licensed to you know administer medication yeah
1: the other question so I feel like I'm drilling you with questions, but this might be just rhetorical. Do I'm, I'm wondering how many of these disorders are not shame-based per se, but shame-related, you know, that, that carry shame with them. Would that be like mm-hmm. the
0: majority of them? I have a reason why I'm asking. Yeah, I think... For a lot of clients, there is just a lot of shame with these disorders. Um, like, yeah, I, 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 don't think that necessarily the shame causes it all the time, but the shame can be a big part of living with that. Uh, this week, we were learning about uh, the autism uh, spectrum disorder, and I read a very sad, sad stat about how depression in adults with autism um can spike once they get to be in their like adulthood because they haven't they like at that age they're able to compare themselves to others and have an awareness of like their functioning versus other people's functioning and that creates like depression which is so sad and that's why i think like It's so important to surround these families with care so the families can like can make sure their child knows like, hey, you're not like a burden to our family so that that comparison doesn't run them off the rails into like a depressed state. Hmm.
1: Yeah, the reason I'm wondering about shame is because in our class, uh, History of Science and the Human. One thing That is kind of like a thread that has carried, you know, we've probably spanned a couple thousand years of history of like medical and scientific knowledge in that class. And, you know, thousands of years ago, even though it seems primitive to us, they did have kind of impressive ways of figuring out what was wrong with people's bodies and treating them, you know, and in hindsight, a lot of it looks laughable when they're, like, you know, mixing dung and dirt together and, like, rubbing stuff on your navel or whatever. But all of that considered, there was still, like, medical treatment. It It's still impressive to me as somebody who's not, like, scientific at all that we were able to figure this stuff out as humanity even before you know, modern technology and like the scientific revolution, all of that. But there yeah. are a few different, uh, cases wouldn't be the word. There are a few different, you know, things throughout cases. Isn't, let me pause cases. Isn't the word. So I went with the word things. That's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we way better. We studied a few primary sources that, weren't all from the same time period. It it was from a big range, but specifically whenever uh, there's shame associated or morality associated with a certain like disorder of the body stuff can kind of go off the rails. Uh, So for example, one of them was, uh, is it is syphilis. Is that the STD? Yes. Okay. So there was a period in time kind of maybe if I'm guessing it might've been like 16th century or so where syphilis was going all around Europe and they kind of knew it was like, they, they did know that it was sexually transmitted and all that sort of thing. But in terms of them coming up with like the origin story of how the disease initially started they were coming up with Mm -hmm. you know the classic like it's god's judgment on people but also they were coming up with like this is the i think it was i think it was native american uh this is their fault for being like cannibals stuff like that so because it like people knew that the disease was sexually transmitted on like a case-to-case basis but I'm talking about the meta-narrative of like, oh, well, this disease is only around because those people are cannibals. So, like, they kind of took mm. the, the mm-hmm. blame off of themselves, you know, for it being something that they're a little bit ashamed of and, like, put it on another group. Um, And there were a few others like that that we studied, too, where, uh, you know, they're blaming things on either, like, women or... Jewish people or whatnot. And the thread that goes through it all is it's always something that's connected to morality, like, and the flip side of morality is sort of shame. So anyway, that's why I was wondering with the disorders is, you know, I'd be curious how many of those invoke shame, because then that can cause you as an individual and it can cause like society as a whole to, kind of do some weird mental gymnastics to, you know, either get the blame off themselves or to get it onto somebody else or to come up with an explanation, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. I'd be interested to see I have no idea. I'd be interested interested to see how much if I could travel back in time when people are saying that syphilis is caused by you know, people from another culture being cannibals, how that, how somebody owning that story affects their own, like, recovery plan. Or if, like, you cling really hardly to, like, well, this is someone else's fault if that reduces your ability to recover, you know? Um, yeah. Huh.
1: Well, that's kind of what I meant by saying on it like they knew that it was uh they knew like what kind of contact was spreading it so i don't think there was any uh sort of mirage about that like you couldn't you couldn't say like oh i don't know how this happened but just as a whole it was like they felt the need to place the blame on somebody or on a group of people the yeah it has to come from somewhere yeah the guy who wrote the primary source i wish i had it in front of me but he was kind of like uh he liked to stir the pot i think that was his reputation and even though he he had that reputation you know uh that doesn't mean that nobody bought into it when he started circulating this idea like there are a lot of people who will uh latch on to something like that when it's salacious or when it you know happens to put down the group of people that I don't like. So it's kind of
0: funny how that works. Yeah. Cause I, I can remember even as a kid, like kid being like middle school, high school, middle school. I can remember one being little and not really knowing what AIDS was. That's another one we talked um, about. Yeah. But all. Yeah. But just knowing that like I had heard some story that AIDS came from Africa And people like either eating or sleeping with monkeys, which is looking back, very, very like inappropriate and racist. Um, But that story kept me from ever really learning about what AIDS actually was. And I don't think it really changed how I looked at the people who had AIDS. I didn't know any because I didn't know what it was. Um, so I guess in that regard, it kept me from actually being able to form any accurate, empathetic connections to people who were, like, suffering with it. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's, I don't know. It might be an interesting book just to see why those stories develop and why, like, we cling to them, you know? Right. Huh. But Shame. Shame and abnormal psychological states. Uh, yeah. Like in the beginning of this class, the first couple of chapters was almost specifically on how we have dealt as like humanity with abnormal psycho like psychological states, because it hasn't you know, it's not new. It's been around for a while going to what you were saying about like medical stuff. We have like a ton of medical records, not medical records, but like skeletons and, like, corpses from, like, we're talking a long time ago, like, caveman times, where, like, there's all these skulls that have these holes in them that then have recovered. Weird. And it's from this belief that, like, if you had these certain disorders, like, I, they wouldn't call them that, but you have to, like, perform the surgery where you puncture the person's, like, skull. And it must have been happening so much that because there's all these skulls that aren't like, well, we punctured the skull and they're dead. No, the skull recovered like and healed from it. So I don't know how yeah, I don't know how effective it was, but it's just interesting seeing that even back then it was something where it's like, hey, we have to get this person back to a more normal state. Um yeah, there is like a lot of depression and shame that can come with these disorders. Um because a lot of them for certain culture groups can still be very tied to religious stuff or can be tied to like something that you did or something that you were, you know, even back, this isn't quite the same, but maybe a little bit like I can remember the Bible talking about a man who was born blind. And the first question Jesus is asked is like, Hey, who did this to him? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And I think that, you know, a lot of culture won't say like that they attach morality to health of any kind. But I think that when you are in that state, um, it's something that tends to pop into people's minds. Like, hey, did I do something to deserve this? One of the cases even talked about like. That idea of like blame. Like, did I do something to deserve this? Like, how how did I get myself into this mess? Um, so it's I don't know, it's interesting. I, I think that shame can really hinder and slow down the recovery process. Because if you think like if you continually think that you're to blame for what's happened to you, and and Maybe sometimes there is something you did that that is a direct correlation to why you have a certain disorder or why you have a certain thing. But if you you think that, like, you deserve it, I guess not you're to blame. If you think you deserve it, which might come more from shame, you know, I'm shameful, I'm ruined, I'm broken, I deserve this. If you think you deserve your disorder, like, you're not going to change. Like, all the information in the world, all the tools can be given to you, but until you... Are ready to work through the process of like, hey, I don't, I don't deserve this. I can live a better life. Like that's where recovery is going to happen. And going back to what you said earlier, I think that's why medication alone is is great, but it needs to be linked with more, I guess, what you would call traditional counseling, so that you can help the person work through that side. It might not be present for everyone, but that side. Of treatment of like, hey, what does recovery actually look like? Which goes back to my addiction, addictions class. Like some people who have addictions, like are afraid of recovery. You know, they can't imagine they can't imagine their normal life being actually worth living or they can't imagine that they have what it takes anymore after being addicted for so long. So like, how do you why would I change if I'm afraid of recovery? There is. Okay, so what you're saying... That was more of a ramble than an answer to the question, but... No,
1: it made me think of something that we read about history of the English language, and I'm trying to think of how I can connect these dots. Is So, uh, in in the book we're reading for history of the English language, it was talking about Uh, language change and the need for, you know, stuff I've talked about in the past, like standardization. And on the one hand it's arbitrary, but on the other hand, you can't let everybody give up or else it just falls apart and nobody can communicate. And there's one passage and really just one phrase he used, uh, David crystal. He's talking, he described it as the centrifugal force of, Language and of standardization Which is like You kind of need People on the one end Who are like hey uh, We need rules We need guidelines We need standardization And you also need The force that's like hey This is moving this is changing We can't try to rigidly Stick with what we've got in the past He called it centrifugal force And with what you're talking about, this might be a stretch, and this is like my really crude way of putting it, but there's almost the same thing with shame, and I, I guess I'm stating this, but I'm posing it as a question of like, there are certain things you should be ashamed of, you know, and so it's like... uh again, I, I guess I think of like the centrifugal force of maybe what a counselor is doing is mostly helping people like get rid of the bad shame, you know, things that they shouldn't be carrying. Um, but also if they feel shame about something that is like a cue that, Hey, maybe you should change this thing in your life. Like helping people recognize that and act on it is also an important thing. Uh, because like, that's not good either if if something in you is telling you, hey, I need to make a change like you can't ignore that for the rest of your life either. So I don't know. It, it's it sounds kind of wrong to say that people should be ashamed of things. But does that make any sense?
0: No, like it makes a ton of sense. I, I was actually thinking and you're a great person to get an opinion from um, for this So I've often wondered if it's easier to describe because there is like, like you said, a good shame and a bad shame. Um, I've, with a couple people and with myself, used the words guilt and shame to kind of point out between like, if I feel guilty for something, I'm acknowledging like, hey, I did something wrong. I'm, I'm guilty for it. And I should be, I need to work to rectify it. I need to work to make it right. Like I'm not like pretending it doesn't exist. Like that's where like that drive in me, hey, something needs to change. Like guilty comes from. And shame, like whereas guilt mobilizes action, shame reduces it. Like shame's more like a morass. Am I, am I using that word correctly? I'm trying to sound smart. Shame's more like a like a mud puddle. You roll around in it. You get stuck in it. It slows you down. It makes you think that you deserve to be in that mud puddle. Like, does that make sense? It does. That, to me, what you're describing has to
1: do with uh, those two things in a vacuum. Like, if I'm dealing with guilt, yeah, if I'm dealing with shame. What I think of with shame is, like, the social aspect And I'm kind of just saying this out loud, like processing it out loud, but there's a weird thing that goes on where like everybody should teach their kids to not be a bully. You know, you should teach your kids to be nice. And if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Mm -hmm. So on and so forth. But at the same time, we've all seen the kid who were like, oh, man, they should have been bullied more, you know, because that like there is. I mean, we've we've both been kids. There are things where it's like you say something weird, you do something weird and you're 12 years old. Everybody looks at you funny and you learn pretty quick like, oh, that's weird. Like I shouldn't say that again. And so there's this weird thing that works in dur- both directions, which is like we don't want anybody to be a bully. Or in other words, we don't want anybody to like go around shaming people. But at the same time, there is kind of like a cultural purpose to it so okay let me give this example last night um i was at devon's and somehow we ended up watching i mean you know how it is we ended up watching i think it was jerry springer on youtube like compilations yeah. of uh phobias and So there's, there's some pretty weird ones. There's people who are like afraid of, you know, lizards and spiders, but there was, there's a lady who's, uh, got a phobia of olives was one of them. So there's like a jar of olives and she's like crying and freaking out.
0: Like the opposite of you as a kid. Yeah.
1: That's actually one of the things I was thinking. Uh, but the other thing i was thinking about is so okay tossing out the fact that a lot of that could have been staged for all i know probably was um i was thinking about how daytime tv like we don't really have that same thing today where people tune in to jerry springer and people who are afraid of uh mustard are like on the tv and everyone is like laughing at them in the studio audience but what we do have is like TikTok. And at least on my TikTok, I you know, you see a lot of really weird people who you're like, uh, like what who who is this person? And it 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 would not surprise me at all if somebody showed up on my feed who was afraid of, you know, onions or I, I don't know why I said onions, olives. Um That person could easily show up on my TikTok feed today. The difference is if you would click on the comments, it would be everybody telling them like why it's not wrong to be afraid of olives and why that's okay. Don't let anybody tell you it's not weird. And so it's it's like kind of I guess, again, it's crude to say, but it's kind of like somebody needs to tell that person that it's weird you know what I mean? And nobody should be the person to do it, but somebody needs to do it. And so... I th- I think I understand what you're saying. But like as a... I think we need to find a... Well, so what I was going to say, I guess, I don't know exactly, but like as a counselor, you would try to counsel that person to not feel ashamed. Like you would try to get it off of them. And on Jerry Springer, there's like a, supposedly some expert, And I'm sure that's what he's doing is he's trying to get that person to release whatever that thing is off their shoulders. And that's the, let me be clear, like, that's the better way to do it. I'm not advocating shame. But there is also some mysterious, I need to think about this a little bit more. There's some mysterious cultural thing where culture teaches us what things are acceptable and which ones aren't
0: yes and i think okay oh man this could be a long answer i'm going to microwave it um i think the best response is one that's more like in the middle like i don't think like the early 90s like just roast in somebody for anything wrong with them or like the daytime tv <sighs> is like the best way of helping people. But I also don't think the total acceptance that we have today of everything is also acceptable. And I think what is needed for a person who's afraid of uh, olives is, to use the Christian lingo, like the truth and love. Hmm. Like some people say that they want to do the truth and love, but it's more just the truth. I think that's like the Jerry Springer, like bring out the olives, give them the truth. Um, And some people want more like the love, like, hey, like it's fine. That's just you. Like, don't let anyone tell you it's weird, but you need both. You need someone to say like, hey, going back to what I said earlier, like if this is causing significant distress in your life, like it's not it's not normal. Like, you might not use that lingo, but like this is something you don't want to live with. And we can get you to a point where it's not a hindrance for your life. Like, so you do need to have people who can say that, but also, like, just the effect of, like, dropping the truth on them and leaving doesn't necessarily help. Because going back to what you said about, like, being 12 and saying something weird and everybody looking at you is, like... In that moment, this is like a part of my answer. In that moment, that individual who has everybody looking at them weird, there's so many different ways that they can interpret that situation that could lead to either dysfunction or function. They could say, ooh, people didn't like that. I guess I don't do that again. Or someone could say like, everyone's looking at me weird. I hate this feeling. I'm super nervous. And then like, they could go on to develop like a social anxiety disorder. So sometimes there's a weird amount of like the cards you're dealt as much as it is like interpretation of events. That's a big part of, I believe cognitive therapy is it's not what happens to a person. It's how that person interprets what happens, Um, which could go, go back to what we were saying with like shame. If I interpret, you know, that this happened and I deserve it, that's going to continue to make more dysfunction. If I, you know, interpret that everyone looked at me weird, not because of what I did, but because I'm weird and I talked, so I guess I don't talk anymore. Um, that's like not necessarily healthy, but you need to be able to have a balance where you can, in truth, say, this is not adding to your life, but also in love say like, Hey, we can like work out of it. Um, so it's kind of like a both and if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah that's a that's a better way to look at it and just to be clear like the Jerry Springer thing if you go watch those videos it's like a circus so I'm not suggesting oh my gosh that that's what it's yeah
0: they're like openly mocking no, those people no I no I think people I think people understand understand where you're coming from like no one's over here like and if you If someone is, they just don't know you. Um, And they're probably not being real with themselves either. It's, It's just one of those things where I think it's so weird zooming back and seeing our, like you said, seeing our society swap. Daytime television was very successful. And now it's almost like the opposite where like. It's almost like people. Are being celebrated for. Like I saw the other day, someone who had someone who was on the spectrum, this is on my TikTok, um, someone who has an account and they're on the spectrum and their mom records them and they talk about stuff. I have only watched one video, so I can't give a feedback, but they were kind of saying how like the mom had all these people railing her because like I can't imagine anybody on the spectrum wanting to be on TikTok and wanting to do all these things. And like the person on the spectrum was just like. These people are stupid. Like I'm helping people. I'm happy to answer questions and help other people see like what they can do with their lives and just kind of form a community. I think that's like the in-between where now people are like ultra defending this person and kind of in defending the person, trying to rob them, not intentionally, but trying to rob them of the platform. So there's this weird, like, you can have no intention and rail the person on like a daytime television show and you can also have no intention and try to white knight the person and both of those can be harmful like on the extreme, yeah
1: that's like infantilizing the person if that's the word like treating them like a baby which yeah that kind of stuff makes me mad where it's like you know you have genuine you know, either empathy or compassion for somebody who does have, who does need some support, but then it's like so selfish to take it so far where you're just like treating them. Like they're not an adult or not like a person, you know Um, I've definitely Mm -hmm. run across that sort of thing. Uh, Do you want me to, do you have anything else or you want me to jump into my thing?
0: No, go ahead, please.
1: Uh, Okay, so it's sort of... We can maybe go short on this one. I'm pulling from a couple weeks ago just because it's a class that I haven't... I don't think I've talked about it, which is American literature. And it's also... Ooh. Yeah, so it's, an, it's another thing kind of like you were saying where it's kind of a hard thing to talk about. I don't feel like I have any big epiphany or anything. But... We got to – so so this class, we've been going through just like American history and talking about literature uh, over the span of time. So it's like a couple hundred years instead of a couple thousand in the other class. But we've gotten more or less to modern times. So a couple weeks ago, we were talking about uh, – one week, we were talking about modernism. And the next, we were talking about postmodernism and i actually like missed half of the classes from our texas trip but i did want to bring bring it um so one thing that i thought was interesting is there's actually a school of thought that uh modernism and postmodernism are not separate that postmodernism is just like the ultimate conclusion of modernism. So I'm saying that, but I guess I hmm. should pause and say, like, if you like, are you you're familiar with modernism and postmodernism? I don't know if everybody listening is. I should probably define those.
0: I think I'm more familiar with postmodernism than modernism. But yeah, c- could you describe those? So, uh,
1: modernism in in terms of literature is like. 1914 to like 45. I think it's world war one and world war two. If I've, if I'm getting those dates correct, but it goes back to, okay, I actually have a little bit of a hard time parsing them. So forgive me anybody, but it goes back to what you were talking about in terms of the mind and, uh, it involves kind of like systems to control either the mind or to control people. So when it boils down to it, modernism has a lot to do with like systems. So.
0: Hmm. That's like, are we talking systems like classification of groups of people, classifications of nations and nation, like nationality, uh, science and like the labeling of chemicals, the labeling of electrons, like everything should be organized. Is that what you mean? Yeah. It it does kind of
1: run a little bit hand in hand with with science and technology in, at least in my understanding. So I do have a little bit of a hard time parsing it, but like with modernism, you're losing some of your romantic belief from the past. So you're losing like, hey, if we just all go out in nature and have a good time, like Walt Whitman or whoever, nature's going to heal us. Everything's going to be good and we'll be restored to our ultimate state. That is more of like a romantic way of, of thinking about it. Modernism is more like, hey, no, we tried that, doesn't really work. But what we can do is we can build the perfect society. And so it does still have, it kind of has belief and disbelief together because you're maybe not trusting in the human spirit, but you're saying, okay, because the human spirit Fails, or because society is messed up, because people are messed up, we can build cities and we can have structures of government and we can have these things that provide order. And this order is going to bring us to something
0: better. And so, yeah, that's kind of the attitude that that makes a lot of sense. Under like you made it so much easier to understand modernism when you said it came, it came after romanticism. Yeah. that just helped it click for some reason. And so like romanticism is like, yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to repeat what you said. So go ahead. I guess at the same time, this is why I'm having
1: a little bit of a hard time reconciling. It is like one of the modern pieces that I read was Flannery O'Connor. A good man is hard to find is the name of it. It's like a short story. And in this story, I mean, obviously spoilers for anybody who cares to go read it, but there is this, it's kind of about this elderly lady and the story starts, she's in her kitchen and you find out she's living with her son and daughter-in-law and then the grandkids and they're all going on vacation and the storytelling has this dry vibe and so you can tell their relationship isn't very good they're bickering about where they're going to go and the whole thing they're just bickering but specifically with the the storytelling and the writing of it the the literature it already has a lot of skepticism and sort of nihilism and so Hmm. it isn't romantic at all and it doesn't feel like a comforting story arc where there's beginning you know act one act two act three rising action climax it doesn't feel like that at all and the story ends up like their car flips over they are held at gunpoint by these people who they think are coming to rescue them but it's actually they're coming there and they They're coming to kill them. Uh, And at the end, like it it ends with them all dying. So it's very like one of those kind of anti-story, kind of anticlimactic. And so even though modernism has some sort of belief structures, there's also this side of it already. This theme of the human mind is messed up because in this story, there's a killer on the loose. And doesn't matter how good you reason with him, if you run into him, you know, he's like schizophrenic, he's going to kill you. And so that it kind of goes into yeah. what you were talking about earlier, like that the mind isn't, isn't masterable or like what we think of as like the conscious, I can control myself, I can discipline myself. Modernism does have some focus on what you said earlier, which is just that we're not as, uh, we don't have as great of control over the mind as we think. And so that's, that's modernism. Mm -hmm. I am rambling a little bit. Postmodernism is the term you hear get thrown out a bunch today and it's kind of what we're in and it really loses like all belief. Like, You know, modernism is, hey, things have a way of kind of going off the tracks. And so we need to build better tracks. Postmodernism is there are no tracks, you know, and in literature. It can look a lot of different ways. It can look like just really meta fiction and meta stories that have no plot, that have no satisfactory ending. It can also be a little bit more subtle that there can be a text that is purposefully crafted in a way that it can be read multiple ways. And personally, I actually try to do that a lot. Like when I write poetry and when I write songs, I that's like really what I'm aiming for eight out of 10 times is, is like trying to give things. Maybe I'm saying too much. I shouldn't maybe be, uh, talking my trade secrets. But what I'm trying to do a lot of times is give it like a positive <laughs> and a negative reading where depending on, eh, that's all I want to say. People can go check stuff out for themselves. But that's like a much more subtle form of postmodernism that is not nearly as deserving of being vilified as we often uh, think of when you hear that phrase.
0: Yeah, so I think like when I think of postmodernism, like you said, modernism said like, hey, there are flaws, we can fix the flaws, here's how we're going to do it by applying rules and reason and knowledge and structure and postmodernism like is very, hey, we tried to fix it and in trying to fix it, we've made things worse. I'm not saying that like. I not want anyone out there to think that like we're over here saying the world's broken and everything's bad. But like there have been things that have tried to fix things and made things worse. Like we're looking back on things we used to think and say and structures we used to have and saying like, "Ooh, that's not necessarily good. So I think now there's this thing of like why even – would you say postmodernism is like why even try to structure? Why even try to do anything? Like –
1: well, the people because
0: whether we do or don't,
1: yeah, the Go people ahead. who are going to structure things are themselves messed up, and so you know, who's watching the watchmen like these are very postmodern thoughts is you know whatever thing you're going to try to put in place is built by a person, and therefore you can't it can't
0: be trusted. Mm. so so like absolute power corrupts absolutely is postmodern yeah like a a a good this is the example
1: i used when i was writing about the difference between the two in class uh having to do with uh nuclear uh i don't want to use the word doctrine uh okay well i will so so nuclear doctrine for example is very modern which is you've got Countries who are enemies, but they hold nuclear doctrine. And when when country A is going to test their nuclear bombs, they're going to let country B know, "Hey, we are testing our nuclear bombs." And there are all these rules and all these dotted i's and crossed T's. It's very modern. It's like, "Hey, we know." the sort of destruction that can happen here. And so we're going to add step upon step upon step, because if we add enough steps, we can make sure that the humans don't mess it up. That's, that's a very
0: like sort of modern construction. Whereas, so that's, that's like why Cuban missile crisis, you know, didn't start nuclear wars because you had to get three yeses from three Russians in a submarine. Like there were enough steps in place that it prevented it. Yes, but on the flip side,
1: if you look at it from a postmodern view, that's why the Cuban Missile Crisis was a crisis. Because the postmodern way of looking at it would be, hey, you guys got all these systems and we still almost destroyed the earth. True. So a more postmodern perspective might be, and frankly, this is a little bit more of how I view view it when it comes to nuclear war is like no amount of risk is really worth it. And that's not saying you shouldn't have nuclear doctrine, that sort of thing. But the more post postmodern view would be, Hey, let's not trust too much in the systems because even the systems are put in place by humans. They're operated and executed by humans and humans mess things up. And so, yeah, that that is where, and this is what I kind of was starting it off with, that is where you could kind of look and see that maybe the two things aren't so different, but postmodernism is just the most extreme version of modernism because it's the most extreme form of distrust in uh, the human spirit.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah I was going to ask how those two things link together. So you're saying that instead of seeing them as two separate things, it's kind of like we're playing Pokemon and postmodernism is like the final evolution of modernism. Yeah. You know, modernism comes out here and says like hey, we shouldn't trust humans. We're not all good. We should like work on ourselves. I'm not And postmodernism is like Well when- no, sorry you finish. Well no, it it just seems like postmodernism then is like, hey, like, we're all bad, so we can try, which is not it maybe missing the point, but like work as hard as we can. We need to acknowledge that it's not gonna make everything perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And like
1: I'm not super well versed in So like not everybody holds that belief. Some people do think that modernism and postmoderners modernism are very different but what i learned that i'd never heard before was that some people think it's the same and like one of my professors specifically feels that way so yeah if i had to kind of try to describe it really succinctly it's kind of the same instinct that works itself out two different ways two very different ways the instinct being distrust for people But the two ways of working it out being clamping down really hard and creating a bunch of rules and structure or kind of, uh, you know, becoming fatalistic, yeah, giving up and just
0: saying, hey, there's nothing we can do. I can see that. So it kind of seems like the beliefs there are the same. It's built on the same foundation. It's how you then proceed with that information.
1: Right. There are Interesting. my uh, professor who teaches this class. He talks all the time about different postmodern books. I think that he was reading for his PhD, but there are ones that, I mean, apparently they make novels that are like choose your own adventure. There are ones that he talks about one where, Uh, every character who dies in the book when you read their name it's underlined and so it's this sort of like meta narrative of how much differently you read the book when you know a character is going to die versus if you read it traditionally where you get emotionally invested you get into real like meta stuff in postmodern literature where it's like at this point it's not the story that is you know, touching something in your heart, then speaking to you, it's, it's very much what's the story about the story or what's the interpretation about the interpretation. Like you can get really deep in the weeds. I think it's kind of, I mean, I don't mind that kind of stuff. I'm sure some people would hate it. Uh, I'm also, I was going to say this, I'm reading catch 22. So, uh, it's for a novel for this class. I'm only like a third of the way through. So I, it's hard to talk about it completely. But it is a very uh, I guess it's it's hard to say it's written about World War One. So in that sense, that would place it as like a modern book. But it was released in, I think, 1961. So that is like the beginning of postmodernism. Are you familiar with that book at all?
0: No. Yeah, no.
1: So uh, Catch-22, you're familiar with the phrase, right? Yes. So it comes from this book, obviously. And what it is in the context of the book is I actually don't know why it's catch 22. I think that might just be like the sense of humor of the book, but the character at one point he's asking, like, uh, he's a bomber in world war one. He's trying to get home. Like he's put in his time. He's flown his missions and he wants to go home. And he asks, like, what's the catch for me to be able to go go home? And whoever he's talking to is like, oh, well, it's catch 22, which means in order to be sent home. Gosh, am I saying this right? Uh, In order to be sent home. You have to be crazy. But. The fact that you want to go home means that you're sane because no sane person would mm. want to be a bomber who is you know always moments away from losing their life. So what the phrase catch 22 means is it's a situation where like wanting so in his in his case wanting to go home proves that he can't go home. And so if there was a crazy guy they would send him home. But the second that you ask to go home, you're guaranteeing that you can't go home because asking to go home proves that you're sane, which means you can't be sent home. And so people a lot Mm. of times use the phrase, I guess, like not exactly correctly, but this is where it comes from. Uh, Just today, I read another chapter where uh, it was kind of the same concept of a catch 22, but it was this like, I think prostitute or i think no it wasn't the prostitute he okay so the character is in rome and he meets this girl and he's saying that he wants to marry her and she says you can't marry me because you're crazy and i wouldn't marry a crazy guy and he says well why am i crazy mm. and she says because you want to marry me and only a crazy person would want to marry me, and so it's another catch twenty two um but that is the book is very like tongue in cheek it's kind of wacky as much as as much as like written literature can be it's actually very wacky it's like satire essentially uh but it is like the postmodern attitude where the catch twenty two is displaying for people like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, which is like a very postmodern viewpoint.
0: Yeah. Huh. Like you, you'll try to be sane and get behind, but you'll be insane and get ahead, kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what happens in the book is like they just keep upping the number of missions that you have to fly. So he flew 30 but they upped it to 35 and then up to 40 and then up to 50 and so he's just at the point I'm reading he's trapped. I don't know if he <laughs> dies or if he uh lives or gets out or what. So maybe I'll report back by the time we re- record again. But uh yeah, it's actually a pretty good book. Once
0: I w- so would you say sorry to cut you. Sorry to cut you off. Would you say that All Quiet on the Western Front, another World War 1 book, is modern or postmodern?
1: I am not familiar. I mean, I'm familiar, but I haven't read it. So I actually don't
0: know. Gotcha. I know it recently came out on Netflix. I'm trying to figure out like whether or not I want to watch it. But I feel like, yeah. oh, that one. Well, no, I was going to say, is it is it modern compared to Catch-22 being postmodern? But I feel like it's also this commentary well maybe okay maybe it's modern because in the book there's a lot of people who glorify war glorify going off and fighting very romanticizing like you're gonna go off you're gonna be heroes you're gonna do all this stuff you're gonna come back with glory boys get out there and they come home and see that that's not the case i don't know if them seeing that's not the case and dealing with like like PTSD and depression, if that's modern or postmodern. It seems like it might be more postmodern,
1: but also the person I know of who recommended watching it wouldn't like postmodern stuff. So that actually, I don't know. I I do want to watch that. That is the interesting thing about
0: Hmm.
1: Like postmodernism and satire is a lot of times when people talk about postmodernism, it's kind of like abstract art. Like it's really easy to just kind of stomp on it. And that's kind of in the most extreme forms that like my professor is talking about that only, you know, literature nerds and universities are reading. They It can get over the top. But also a lot of people Probably well, first off, we are postmodern, like by virtue of when we were born, so people are a lot more familiar with it yeah. than they think. But the other thing in the preface to Catch 22, they were talking about you know, it's like the 50th anniversary edition, so they're talking about the reception 50 years later, and they're talking about how the book. Was what was unique about it is that the uh anti-war crowd and the military crowd both loved the book, which is kind of peculiar if you think about oh. it. And so, yeah, that's one thing I think is interesting about satire, that it can get a bad rap, but it can be so subversive that it. You're you're you let your guard down or it just, it gets into your head some side way and you don't even realize maybe the point that you're agreeing with. And also part of satire is not just to make a positive a positive point, but to tear down points. And so maybe that can be the reason why, uh, you know, a, a anti-war crowd and a military crowd can both enjoy it. Is because it's not so much about what the book is telling you to believe, but it kind of deflates false or wrong or bad ideas. And so, I don't know, it's pretty interesting. I uh, am only, like I said, a third of the way through the book, but yeah, it's good stuff.
0: Sounds good. I want to say... I want to say I'll read it when you're done <laughs> it. But I know I know how much I'm reading for school. Maybe I'll just get the. Audiobook. Yeah, it
1: honestly, you should. It'd probably be a good audiobook. It's 450 pages. And the way he writes is so backwards sometimes, which is the style that I think it would go down easier. Listening to it and hearing like vocal inflections versus just reading it. He'll he'll have lines in there where like he's talking about how lazy the main character is and he'll have a whole passage that is about him not waking up every morning to not do work and sometimes when he goes and sees the completed task he's proud of how much he didn't do to help and so it's like kind of funny once you realize what's going on, but also just making everything opposite when you're reading it on the page, it gets a little hard to focus.
0: Hey everyone, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, we host this episode and all of our episodes over at our Substack Coming Along Nicely and Tim also does some writing over there as well. It I'm a little biased, but it's pretty great. You can find him at as it were or at nisley.substack.com. We'll see you guys in the next one.